This episode is dedicated to Jacob Reeves, Ian Joseph Wolfgang Riley Peterson, Harry Lencio Rios, and Jason S. for becoming our newest Southpaw supporters and helping to make this project possible. The Southpaw podcast and project is supported entirely by listeners like you. If you want to support the work that we do, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. Share these episodes, follow us on social media. If you're a new listener, make sure to click subscribe. And if you really want to support this project, then become a paid monthly subscriber on patreon.com slash southpawpod. If you head over to Patreon and subscribe for just $4 a month, you will get immediate access to our complete catalog of bonus episodes, videos, and articles. The more supporters we have, the more time we can dedicate to the show, which means more bonuses, such as classic fight commentary, transcripts of interviews, building a liberation martial arts online curriculum, and most important of all, hire and pay for staff. If you can't support us monthly, you can also do one-time donations at co-fi.com slash southpawpod. We also have t-shirts and sweatshirts to not only flex the show, but your own moral compass. By supporting us, you're not only helping us grow, you're also helping us stay and keep this project running. We can't exist without your support. Thank you. Before we kick off today's fight study, let me give a shout out to our own Paul, or South Paul as we call him in the chat, who recently got married. This is why you haven't heard much from him lately, as planning a wedding is a lot. So congrats to Paul and spouse. I'm not going to state her name because I know Paul likes to keep things low key. This is also why he doesn't want to create his own social media accounts, and I don't blame him. But I think I speak for everyone when I say I wish them a long marriage based around MMA, anime, and K-pop. Now moving ahead. (laughs) This is Sam. This is Todd. This is Jason. And this is Fight Study. Let's introduce today's panel. We've brought back boxing, wrestling, and MMA coach Jason Sargas. Hi, Jason. How you doing, Sam? And we've brought on BJJ coach and judoka Todd Levin. Welcome, Todd. Thanks for having me, Sam. So Todd is new to the panel, but not new to Southpaw, as he's one of the very early listeners, possibly one of the original five. He's also how I got Dr. David Vine on the show. I'd say majority of the guests have come by way of introduction from the Southpaw community. So though we are a small community, we are mighty. Now let's talk about UFC 264, Poirier versus McGregor 3. Starting with the main event, Dustin Poirier versus Conor McGregor. So to give a backdrop, they first fought as featherweight prospects. McGregor won the first time by KO in the first round, but they went on two different paths as McGregor reached his peak very quickly and very early in his career, whereas Poirier hit his peak closer to the MMA average, which is later than other sports, much closer to 30. For heavyweights, it's even later than that. In the second fight, which happened earlier this year, this time at 155, it was Poirier who won by KO in the second round. 
narrative of that fight was that McGregor didn't know how to check leg kicks. Part three also ended in the first round, this time by doctor stoppage due to McGregor's ankle being broken. But Poirier was close to ending that fight in the first round anyway. Todd, what were your expectations going into the fight and how did it play out compared to your expectations? My expectations going into the fight, uh, people were asking me, you know, what do you think is going to happen? I thought Dustin was going to get probably a third round TKO, maybe from ground and pound. You know, I don't think anybody saw a, a broken, I guess it was a tibia. You know, he broke his tibia right at the end of the first round there. I don't think anybody uh, guessed that was going to happen. But, uh, you know, these things kind of happen in M- MMA. From the second fight, there was that, you know, that boxing stance because he was going to fight a boxer. Either way, you know, the boxing stance didn't really do so well. So everybody thought he was going to go back to karate stance, Connor, which he did for a little bit, but also he had a kind of tighter stance that I saw. And, um, you know, the first 10 seconds, I think he threw a couple spinning back kicks. Um, so that was kind of surprising. You know, he kind of thought the old Connor is back. But once they got into the rhythm of things, you know, Dustin Dustin really handled the pressure well. And um, he got a, he's, he get, he got a takedown while uh, kind of got that little guillotine. And, uh, you know, everybody was screaming. But, you know, from the angle that I saw that Dustin was controlling with his right hand, Connor's left arm. Um, so he didn't really get a good tight guillotine and then the camera switched and you saw you know his hands weren't even connected so um once they kind of were in a decent position on the ground connor was getting some elbows at dustin's head which didn't look too good but um poirier had a good ground and pound from the top and it really didn't look good for connor um going into yeah towards the end of the round and eventually connor got up and uh, they were th- exchanging some punches, and then Connor falls back, and I knew something was wrong. And then I looked down, and his foot was really messed up. Did you think initially he was dropped by a punch, or you knew right away it wasn't the punch? I just thought, you know, something happened to his foot. Um, it, I immediately thought it was his left leg. So when he sat down, uh, you know, he kind of couldn't step back on his leg so he just sat back against the cage and i knew something was up with his leg and then of course they showed the the camera on it and it was pretty pretty gruesome jason what did you think both needed to do to win going into this fight compared to the actual game plan and execution you ended up seeing i think the um the appropriate approach would have been to attack the body and connor did initially a couple spinning back kicks a couple uh, straight kicks to the body. Why do you say that would be the appropriate thing to do to attack the body? Because if you watch Poirier's defense, and he has very educated boxing defense. He's really good. He, he does sort of a shoulder roll with a high elbow guard. Um, not dissimilar to the Philly shell, but the Philly shell where the, the, the lower arm the, or the lead arm wraps around the belly. Um, so with that high guard, with that high elbow, the body sort of exposed. <clears throat> um, and when they first fought, or excuse me, when they fought the second time, 
Poirier was doing a great job of punching in between Connor's punches, intercepting strikes um, or slip and returns like delayed counter punching. And uh, Connor was headhunting the entire time. And as he missed, um, Poirier made him pay. So I think with, with that kind of educated defense and, you know, it's, it's top heavy with that, that high guard and, and the shoulder rolls, he is susceptible to the body a little bit. Do you notice how like his back is really erect? It's like a perfect back if you're going to do a deadlift or a squat, right? You want this really erect spine and your chest puffed out. So he has like this really straight back, which kind of, to your point, then like sticks his stomach out for body shots. Yeah, he's, his stance and his movement is, if I were watching him, I wouldn't say, and I'd be wrong, right? I would definitely be, I, would, I wouldn't say he's uh, next level, physical, physically gifted, um, but, he, but, but he is. He has intangibles like vision and presence inside the pocket and the ability to time counters, simultaneous counters, delayed counters. He's also good at fighting on the lead. Um, and vision and timing and reaction time and also, you know, grit and composure under pressure that allows you to respond in real time while, while you're making some reads. He does that as well as anybody, but he doesn't look, it doesn't look super smooth. It's not, I mean, his, his stance sometimes gets a little bit, uh, gets a little bit wonky whenever he, he does the shift. Um, but but it, it works for him. And if you, if you watch closely, his ability to punch in between Connor's punches and basically everyone he's been competing against in the last few years uh, is something that he didn't have in that first Connor McGregor fight. Um, in, earlier in his career, um, if you go back to even the documentary on him, he would, get, he would swing and then the other guy would swing. They would have this gentleman's agreement to go back and forth like, like a goddamn ping pong match. But now he's seeing things and he's punching in between punches. Um, and when the other guy gets a little bit wild or wants to go too big, he, he, he notices that load up, that change and shift of the shoulders and hips. And he'll lower his level and he'll take you down. And he'll, he'll score a cheap and easy one. If he gets on top, he's a, he's a heavy, heavy guy from that top position. He recognizes ground and pounders as well as anybody. So um, that's why I would would have established some body work, knowing it's a five round fight. Um, wanting to, I mean, you got five rounds to work. So you start to invest in some of that stuff early instead. And I would have worked the legs as well, but I think where Connor sort of got off track, he started with a good game plan. He didn't over, overextend on that left hand like he usually does. And certainly did in the, in the first fight. And he does that against Southpaws constantly he overreaches overextends and he gets blasted with right hooks um and you know the the Poirier 2.0 is going to make you pay if you lead face first and connor didn't do that right off the bat he actually did a good job of disguising some of his shots but then he started to fight Poirier like Poirier wasn't world class he just started whipping kicks at one after another one after another like he's a bully well, I got news for you. You're not going to fucking bully Poye. It's not going to happen. I don't care who you are. I don't care how many millions of dollars you're worth because of how much whiskey you sold. You're not going to bully the guy and no chance. He's too grizzled. He's been around too long and he's not going anywhere. So, you know, 
starting to feel yourself a little bit from the success he had in the first minute. I think it cost him because if you watch like by the third minute of the fight, I think at three minutes and 36 seconds or something, Connor starts to load up on that left hand again and he shows it and you see, and they're both southpaws. I said it earlier, uh, McGregor doesn't do exceptionally well against southpaws. He starts loading up on his left hand and you see Pouillet time his own counter left that simultaneously splits McGregor's. And McGregor can eat a punch, but psychologically, I think it wears on him more than it does physically. And after three minutes, Connor was content to go for a guillotine when normally you would think that he would want to keep that fight standing as, as much as possible. So I think Connor started with the right game plan, um, but Poirier, Poirier did what he, what he does. He finds openings. He makes some reads. He has educated defense, which is incredibly underrated and may have been the only goddamn fighter on the entire card to have any whatsoever. It was the most, <laughs> it was the most defensively, striking-wise, the most defensively negligent card I've seen in a long time. We'll get into that because there's some fights that I want to talk about where it was just like, where's the defense? Right. <laughs> One thing that I noticed about Poirier not even in this fight, in a lot of his fights. And I don't even necessarily know if it's a bad thing, but he has this twitch where he constantly messes with his pants. Like uh, if you ever watch Taekwondo fighters, they're always fidgeting with their pants. And just like in Taekwondo, it's not necessarily a bad thing because sometimes you use it to fake people like come attack me while I'm messing with my pants. And then this is when I'm going to hit you back or counter you. I couldn't tell if it was hurting him or not, but it definitely is something that he always does. And I think it's just a twitch that he can't get rid of, but maybe he uses it to draw people in because he can't get rid of it anyway. Did you notice that, Jason? Yeah, I, I noticed. I pick up a lot of these things from, from fighters, and I, I think it's, it's subconscious. I don't think it's intentional. Um, I used to watch Nate Carr, um, a three-time national champ um, at Iowa's coach when I was wrestling at West Virginia and he would just touch his nose for, for se seemingly no reason. And he would hit the, the sweetest duck under to a cross body lock that I've ever seen. And you know, it's coming because he touches his nose and then something explosive is coming behind it, but it didn't matter. He was just too fast. He was too powerful, too explosive. And you know, it, it might be something like some guys have a hitch in their jab, which is technically incorrect, but they feel more comfortable with their own timing if they're allowed a little, a little hitch. Some, some, some guys with ridiculous hand speed um, uh, in profession in Major League Baseball, same thing. They get a little, they like preload it and then go, and you know that that's not correct, but it works for them. So maybe it helps adjust his timing or. Or it's a comfort thing, but I think at this point it's self-conscious or it's subconscious. Excuse me. Good point. And it's not always something that hurts the fighters. I know, um, like Dominic Cruz has this weird twitch where he'll back up to kind of like recenter himself mentally, and he'll kind of like pump his shoulders and take these giant breaths while he's pumping his shoulders, and then he finds himself in the fight again. And I wonder if that's something also like Dustin does to kind of like reset himself. Well, I think the breathing is probably is somewhat intentional that, that eventually becomes habituated when you do it, when you do it long enough. So though it has a purpose, it sort of becomes habituated into a, a bit of a tick. You got to be careful. Sometimes uh, things can be a tell. 
I think later in the the career of um, Clay Guida, all he did was play with his hair. He kept fixing his hair, and then people would just start blasting him while his hands are, are tied up in uh, what is now like a bit of a receding mane. But it was it was quite the head of hair back in the day, <laughs> and with his like constant movement, it was just always all over the place. Uh, I think people figure that out with Donald Cowboy Cerrone too, the way he sways his hands. And then once his hands stop swaying, you know, the punches are coming. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, Nico Price has a tell, a little tick, when he when he shuffles left and right to cut the ring off, which he does very well with his footwork. But while he does it, he he rocks his hands a little bit lower and then right back up and a little bit lower and right back up. And when guys do that, because we're bipeds, right? When we move, we tend to, to counterbalance our arms with a swaying motion. It helps us be a little bit more mobile and balanced. So it's tough to get rid of that. And it's a trade-off. You have a little more mobility when you do that. But And I know this this is jumping to another fight, but uh, Paya shuffled, shuffled with him, shuffled with him, and then just would go as he caught him rolling his hands a little bit lower on that movement. So you can time some of that stuff. I think the the more um, astute fighters who have that kind of visual acuity, they, they find those. And if they have the athleticism and the, the fast switch muscle fiber to back it up, you see some pretty cool stuff sometimes. Now let's talk about the ankle break, or as Todd mentioned, maybe it's the tibia break. But in searching through the fight, which isn't actually that long, there's two moments where it looked like it got really damaged. One was where Dustin checked a kick and points at Connor's leg to say something happened. And I posted that online on slow-mo so you could see it. And also a point where Connor throws a front kick and talking about the elbow position that Jason was mentioning he dropped that elbow down, so it's basically 12-6, and that's how he blocked the front kick. So the front kick just hit the tip of Poirier's elbow, and then the torque of the punch, going back to what Jason was talking about, where he was overextending at that point, and it was just so much torque, maybe that was the final thing, and then the leg just gave out. Agreed. It possibly could have been uh, an accumulation, right? Um, or it could have been an acute injury in in the moment but i i more often than not i, I would imagine that it's uh in that fight if you watch how many kicks would you would we see how many spinning back kicks right off the bat and then he would throw a, a huge kick a huge left kick uh with low roundhouse and then he would follow it up with a tee and so he kept going and he kept going to it as if um and yeah, the the tib fib breaks are pretty rare, but they're happening a little bit more. And to act like they're a freak occurrence, as opposed to just a rare occurrence, uh, is a little disingenuous. And I think you you need to be a little more observant. It's happening more and more often. I know some people on Twitter pointed out that once calf kicks started getting popular, um, you know, for a while nobody was stopping it, and then in the last. I think starting from January, people started noticing as people were checking the calf kicks in other organizations, like more leg breaks were happening and including in the UFC where we saw some leg breaks as well. So, well, it also has to do with, with the style of kick. You're not turning over that calf kick. You know, 
the same way you're turning over like a, a kick that's higher on the thigh. Yeah. So when you do it and you do it at distance and yes, it's your longest limb, um, kicking at their closest limb, but if it does get checked, you're leading with the part of the shin that, that, that can't take as much force and it, it becomes a fulcrum and the, the Connor kicks hard. You know, he, he's, he's pretty thick in the legs um, and he rotates hard. And if you're not kicking, I don't want to say correctly, because that's, that's not the, that's not the right word choice. But if you were, if you're kicking with that kind of bad intent, the end, and you catch it on like the, the stronger part of the, of just below the knee, right. Or even the kneecap itself, it's going to hurt both people, but you know, you're starting to see it more and more often, even high level kickboxes. Anderson Silva was very high level, uh, Spong, very high level. Hell, didn't Ray Cepho bust his leg up kicking? These are guys who have been doing it a long time. So it isn't some kid off the soccer field decides to take MMA, all of a sudden starts winging kicks at some other guy's knee and it shit just starts exploding. Um, you're talking about guys who have some experience in the striking game, especially in the, with a, with a kick heavy arsenal and it's happening to them. So, you know, placement, uh, a little more strategy instead of just, uh, piss and vinegar and like, go, go, go. And that's, that was my problem with, with Connor's game plan is that he was having some success and then he fought like a bully against a guy who has exceptional counter striking and is a, a notoriously difficult out at 155 pounds. And, uh, you know, again, you're not going to fucking bully. Quick. You're just not going to do it. One thing that surprised me was this McGregor looked a lot worse than the McGregor who fought Chad Mendez in 2015. It's not just that he's not keeping up, but much like Joe Rogan's commentary, he's actually getting worse. So to the point about the way he's even throwing the kicks, back in the day, he used to place his kicks. Like he would aim and try to hit that target. And I remember in The Ultimate Fighter, he always kept drilling his team that they shouldn't just punch or kick blindly. They should aim where exactly they wanted to land on the body and then try to be precise. His whole thing, remember he had all those like speeches about precision? Yeah. And now this current Connor. The precision is gone. Like you said, he just tries to bully. So even when he was throwing the kicks, he was kicking a majority of the time with that same leg that ended up getting injured. He was just spamming with that side, every different kind of kick and not really caring where it landed. He was just going to throw it like it's a blunt object. So it all kind of checks and it all makes sense. And, uh, you know, who knows what will happen to Connor from here. But first glance reactions. How do you all see Charles Oliveira versus Dustin Poirier going? Let's start with you, Todd. I think Oliveira is either a second or third degree black belt. So he's been a, he's been a black belt for quite a while. So I'm not exactly sure. You know, that would be a really interesting matchup on the ground. Um, Striking-wise, you can see Oliveira is, uh, you know, he's getting better, getting more comfortable. Um, as long as he can close the distance and get against the cage, I think he will take Dustin down, uh, get a good ground and pound, probably get to a position that he wants. And, you know, knowing him, he would w- probably want to take the back and finish with the rear naked choke. But, you know, it's interest- it would be really interesting to see Dustin uh, seeing how he defends Oliveira's grappling. 
that would be a really fun fight. I can't imagine that fight not being good just because of the way their styles match up. What do you think about this fight, Jason? Just first glance reactions. I'm sure later on when you study it more, you'll have different opinions. Oh, it gives me chills just thinking about it. Like <laughs> I said, Boye is so ridiculously tough. Um, and uh, I love the evolution of Charles Oliveira. And he just keeps getting better. His wrestling is improving. His striking is improving. And his jiu-jitsu is just off the charts good. Um, the Both the guys have a tendency to, to get hit, but yet it's how you get hit, right? Pocket presence means a lot. I think the most pocket present, uh, the most, the, the fighter in the UFC with most pocket presence um, just retired. That's Felder. Everyone talks about his chin. His chin's fantastic, but it's also the fact that he is in there and he is poised and calm and comfortable, not flinching. And he sees the punches coming and slight rolling of the shoulder, slight rolling of the chin and neck. Put yourself in a better ability to absorb a blow as opposed to just eat all that energy. So um, you're watching these guys, though they, they get hit um, because both are very offensive striking wise their ability to absorb some punishment has to do with their their composure in the pocket um it's an aspect of defense i don't think um is really noted or picked up on at least by the casuals who just want to see blood and just bleed bullshit so that ties in to the grit that you see from poyer he's always in your face um Fighters like like Poye, like like Felder, like the Diaz brothers, their conditioning and their composure allows them to be present, and that it really does go a long way. And that's what I think. Where I think the advantage would lie in that fight, I think tools wise and skills wise, if you're going to design a fighter, I like Charles Oliveira, but the, some of the intangibles, I'd put money on Poye. Next, we have the welterweight fight between Gilbert Burns and Stephen Thompson. Though Burns won by unanimous decision, according to the cards, it was one round apiece going into the third. Then Burns ran away with it. Jason, what did you think about this fight? Uh, am I the only one that saw the, the meme, the, not the meme, the gif of, or is it, it's gif, right? The <laughs> gif of Burns punching himself in the face? <laughs> I noticed it during the moment. So... Speaking on that, he went so wild at times that he actually hit himself once in the face and looks like he dropped himself, but I think he was a little off balance anyway. Um, all joking aside, that kind of offense where he went, he doubled up and tripled up, even though it was wild, uh, because he is such a heavy hitter, he is strong and he can fight at that pace um, for a while. He caused some problems on the secondary and tertiary just wild offense that he, that he that he put on Wonder Boy, and Wonder Boy is great at avoiding it uh, first time every time. You're not going to hit him with your first technique, um, but swinging hook, hook, jab, straight, or jab, wild overhand, and he just kept that forward pressure, and he was able to get to Thompson's hips in his striking, as wild as it was, and sometimes as ludicrous as it, as it looked was the only reason he had the success on his takedowns. 
that in an, an ever improving wrestling game from someone who is, um, I don't know how old Burns is, but he's, he's been around a while. He's been in uh, a, a jujitsu force. Everyone knows that, but I, I was sleeping on his wrestling. I knew it was good and improving. I knew it was, he was very physically strong, but when I watched him come in, he was hitting those penetration steps. He looked smoother and faster and even like greater hip mobility than, uh, that I think I had ever witnessed in his career. So I was wondering if Thompson's uh, ability to manage distance was going to be, I thought it was going to be the deciding factor in this fight. And I would have put money on, on wonder boy because no one could take him down because he manages distance so well, but that's because everyone's shooting like abysmal takedown attempts from a mile away. And Burns just kept, he just, he went, what is it? The Tasmanian devil until he got close enough to those hips. And then you just see how physically strong he was. Um, and he was able to get takedowns, what, three or four, I think. And each time, I don't think he gave up that top position once he got him. Todd, what did you think? In um, the second round, I saw um, a lot of kicks from Wonderboy that kind of keep range to get away from that takedown. Um, but at the same time, you know, there were a few times where uh, Gilbert Burns, I'll just call him Durino, he would put him close to the cage and you'd see Wonderboy peeking back to make sure, you know, how close he is to the cage, where he's at in the cage, you know, because I don't think he wanted to be there, you know. If he's close to the cage and and uh, Durino closes the distance, he's going to get a takedown. So, you know, he was definitely afraid of that. Um, in the In the opening round, um, I noticed Durinho had like a, a bit of a wider stance than he usually does, you know, maybe like trying to, uh, you know, get Wonder Boy at his own game, you know, use a little more karate style. Um, so I was wondering if that would, you know, keep on to, you know, towards the end of the fight. And, uh, you know, he closed it up a little bit, but, you know, he was still using a wide stance throughout the whole, the whole fight. Uh, there was an interesting moment at the towards the end of the first round. You know, he, Durinho had Wonder Boy up against the cage on the ground, and Wonder Boy was starting to get up, but he he had his knee down on the ground, and Durinho was throwing some good knees to the body, but I think he was playing that game, you know, not to get kneed in the head. And then Durinho saw that opening and just started punching the hell out of him uh, in the face, and that forced Wonder Boy to stand right back up. Um, so I thought that was a pretty interesting moment. Um, I agree with you, Sam. I had it, uh, the first round for Durinho, the second round for Wonder Boy, and then the third round was definitely Durinho's round. Todd, you know how good Gilbert Burns is on the ground. Being a jiu-jitsu person, you probably have trained long enough where you remember Gilbert Burns as a competitor. I think Gilbert Burns actually, didn't he just win the world and then immediately after winning it went right into MMA. Yes. So with that said, were you surprised at all how Stephen Thompson was able to avoid not only preventing Dorino from getting better positions, but fight ending positions? Yeah, I think there's one thing um with uh Dorino is he's good, you know, taking your back and getting a, a good rear naked choke. And, um, you know, a lot of people will train just keeping their back on the mat so you don't get your back taken, you know, 
and also MMA is a different monster where you're eating shots, you know, um, you're, you're worried if you're on the bottom, you're worried about eating shots and also trying to get up. Um, and if you're on top, it's kind of, uh, you have to play a middle ground with keeping pressure or taking off pressure and, you know, getting a good ground and pound. Um, so, you know, definitely, uh, Woodley or Wonder Boy doesn't have a good, uh, as good of a jujitsu pedigree as, uh, Durinho, but, you know, his jujitsu is defensive enough to avoid, you know, getting into super bad positions. Um, and a lot of the grappling happened against the cage. So it was also hard for, um, Durinho to kind of get to, you know, a better position. There were a few times, you know, Wonder Boy's back was up against the cage and he was kind of like, you know, sitting against the cage and you saw Durinho trying to pull his hands from under him to get him back, you know, flat on the canvas. But, uh, I think, um, right at the end of the third round, Durinho got a good takedown into side control and, um, he had a little bit of a guillotine attempt. Not exactly sure what happened. Maybe Wonder Boy kind of came up a little bit, but he was trying to go for a guillotine and, uh, and got a mount position from that. Just from the threat. Exactly. You know, so Wonder Boy knew what was up. He didn't want to be there. So, you know, I'd rather get mounted than get choked out. And the fight ends there. The other thing about Wonder Boy's family is that he's not just married into Chris Weidman's family, but he's also married into Carlos Machado's family. So that type of like defensive jujitsu is something that he's been working on for a long time. Yeah, it's interesting because, you you know, I'll, I've grappled with, you know, high level MMA fighters and, you know, on they're technically blue belts, but, you know, their defense is on a brown or black belt level just because they, you know, they've been there before and they've, they've rolled with high level guys. Um, and plus, you know, if I'm trying to ground and pound, they're right up back on their feet. Um, so it's a different game. You know, if I'm doing competition style jujitsu, you know, I could hold them down, but I'm not scoring points with the ground and pound. So the second I take off a little pressure, they're going to stand right back up. So, uh, as training MMA, you have to, you have to find that middle ground, the good pressure on top and a good ground and pound and training for that defensively against a guy like Durinho, maybe, uh, you know, it's hard, it's, it's a lot harder. And at, at the, in the post fight interview, Durinho was saying, you know, he was, he was training with one guy and the guy was just trying to defend takedowns the whole time so he probably got a lot of rounds in just trying to go for the takedown against a guy who doesn't want to get taken down so that's why i think Dudinho had a had a lot of good takedowns against uh wonder boy that we're not used to seeing it definitely seems like wonder boy is a little slower than he used to be not like a lot but just a hair which means he can still hang in the top 10 for a while because he's just that good but getting another shot at the belt seems less conceivable now. Next is the heavyweight fight between Tai Tuivasa versus Greg Hardy. Going back to what Jason was talking about as far as defensive irresponsibility, this is a good example. The fight lasted about a minute. 
Greg Hardy initially had the upper hand, beating Tuivasa to the punch and rocking him. Then he fucked up and got knocked out. Jason, what happened there? I'll tell you what happened. Hardy likes to beat people up. He doesn't like to fight. He's a football player. He doesn't like to fight. He doesn't want to get in a fist fight. He doesn't want to dig deep. He doesn't want to fight anyone that's his physical equal. He doesn't. He avoided that shit like the plague. He wants to beat people up. There's a difference between fighters and people that want to beat people up. It's a different thing. People who want to beat people up, the second they get someone in there that's better than them, that they have to problem solve, they will lose. They won't do it. They're not there for that. Hardy's not there for that. He's always been the bigger, stronger, better athlete. So when a guy like Tuivasa comes in with tattoos on his love handles and says, fuck that, and he gets stung by Hardy right off the bat with a left. And Hardy's like, oh, yeah, yeah, like beating people up. He gets that, that, that hunger for violence until he gets a guy who's every, weighs every bit as much as he does and probably has better te- definitely has better technique on his punches and has some pop himself because all heavyweights do for the most part. <laughs> and he gets shut the fuck down. And, hey, you know, I, I, don't, I mean, if you can't tell, I'm not a Greg Hardy fan. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think any of us are. I don't. I don't like him as a human being. We can get into that and we can talk about my lack of forgiveness or uh, anything like that. People get second chances. You show me some contrition and we can have that discussion until then. Um, I hope Tuivasa fights him every weekend and, <laughs> and knocks him out every weekend. But I, 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 I digress. It is, it is the ability to punch, but not the ability to move out of the way of a punch or recognize the nuances of, of positioning. And what's coming. So you don't see it as a lucky punch by Tuivasa? No. Tuivasa is a, a better striker. He's been in there. He knows how to, how to kickbox. You have some serious physical gifts from, from Greg Hardy. A legitimate NFLer. All pro. Like He's a stud physically. He really is. And he has the height. He looked like he came in in great shape. Um, I know Billy Padden was working with him. Uh, Billy Patton is uh, over at American Top Team, and he was he's from Philly. They call him Billy from Philly. Great boxing coach. So I know you're going to teach this guy to have some hands. But you guys know this, right? There's, there's guys who learn how to punch. And they can look fantastic on the pads. But it's if 50% of striking is offense, and the other 50% is defense. I just don't understand why there isn't a want to learn it. <laughs> I get it. I get it that offense is what, what Dana White wants. But he can go fuck himself. right? You're in there with other heavyweights that hit hard. Uh, you'd be remiss to think that you can continue to headbutt punches from the person who's probably 300 pounds and still be standing. So... And I also get it that the visual acuity and the synaptic response, the neuromuscular junction, right? Your, your muscle memory from being able to, to, in real time, compute that there's stuff coming at you, like a, a fist or an elbow or a knee or a kick. But at the same time, these guys are so proud of their ability to punch that there is no real want. Um, to pursue the ability to duck, dodge, parry, 
slip, even a six-inch drop step, which is a great setup for a counter right hand. Um, they just don't seem to want it. And I guess it's because, hey, if you give me an NFLer who can spam right hands and Dana wants to sign him, I guess that's the most expedient route to uh, to getting a guy a contract. But it's also the most expedient route to getting the guy knocked the fuck out. Todd, did you have anything you wanted to add? I think uh, Jason makes a really good point of, uh, you know, how to punch and know where you are positionally wise to be ready for the next step. And uh, when Hardy got hit by that left, I think his hands were up in the air. You know, his shoulders were nowhere near his face. He, you know, he was swinging and banging, as they say, you know. He wasn't really trying to, you know, use good technique. He just, he rocked him a little bit. But, you know, once he smelled blood, he was, you know, he went so aggressive that he, you know, all technique went out the door. Um, his arms were flailing around. And the second he got hit, you know, his hands were up in the air. And then from there, Ty, he finished with that ground and pound. Very satisfying. <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, it was. <laughs> you know, and then uh, finishes up with the shoey. So <laughs> that was uh, very entertaining from the, the opening bell until, you know, he Ty was out of the arena. Yeah, Tui Vasa keeps trying to get that to catch on, tries to get all of us to do the shoey. I, I don't think that's going to catch on. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> not not in the not in the era of COVID. I think we'd be uh, yeah. <laughs> we'd be better better served to avoid that. Yeah. Next is Irene Aldana versus Yana Kuniskaya, which actually I I really like this fight, and I'll get into that later. But this was a women's catchweight bout at 140 because Aldana missed weight. This was Aldana's second first round KO by left hook. Of course, being MMA. There's more punches after that, but her left hook is becoming her signature punch. Todd, give us your thoughts about this fight. Um, Kuniskaya, she came in pretty aggressive. Um, you know, she she didn't really seem to have very good rhythm. And it you saw Aldana a little bit calculated, um, you know, waiting for her moment. So, you know, Kuniskaya was throwing, you know, some spinning techniques, you know, spinning back kicks, spinning back fists. And uh, she was also trying to clinch, but Aldana got got out of there pretty well. And, and Aldana was just, you know, waiting for her moment, waiting for her moment. And eventually it came and she got that nice little left hook and finished with the ground and pound. It was a very good performance by Irene Aldana and uh you know Yana just it didn't seem like he she caught her rhythm you know if she you know if she got a few connections a few more connections with her strikes um you know slowed down a little bit maybe she could have made the fight a little longer but um she was a little bit too aggressive and and that was her fate Jason, you mentioned this earlier about the lack of defense on this fight. And I think just like the previous fight we just talked about, this is another great example. Maybe not from both people, but there was a great amount of variety that came from Kuniskaya. But it was all offense, and I don't think she showed any defense. So what were your thoughts about this fight? Well, Todd, Todd just said it. She got over-aggressive, right? Kuniskaya fought 
uh, Adana, like Adana didn't know how to box. And I, 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 it's obvious because this guy has some tools, but she never got her head off center line when she came forward with, and everything ended up in like, like a muddy, ugly clinch situation when she did until she, until Adana started timing. Adana, Adana can box. She got some hands. Um, and she's another one. She has some pocket presence. So it's this, this spammy offense that has no why. <laughs> why are you doing it? What did you see that prompted you to do that? Because I'm watching it in like 0.8 speed or 0.75 speed. And I'm, I'm just blown away with how piss poor it is. And I hate to say that. And it, and it's not specifically a Kuniskaya fight. Kuniskaya is some is a fighter that looks incredibly good when she is fighting in fear or opposition. I like fighters that have the ability to problem solve people who are superior than them in multiple aspects. Um, maybe you wear them out with some cardio, with some pressure early, and you throw away the first round. Three round fights are a little bit difficult for that because you don't necessarily want to throw away the first round. Um, but how do you problem solve? How do you how do you start to 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 compute and analyze the data that's in front of you? Or are you just sort of, sort of screaming and grunting as you punch the air until you hopefully eventually hit something? And that's what it, that's what the fight looked like. I'll, I'll be honest. I, if it didn't end in the first round, I was probably going to miss the second round to go get a beer. I, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't like, and I, I don't like bad fighting. And it's almost, it almost seems like in, I think Yana's a good athlete. I really do. I think she she's good athleticism and she could be very good. But you don't if you bully like if you're a hundred no and you beat up a hundred eighth graders, that doesn't make you good. <laughs> and if you're doing suboptimal shit because you're fighting suboptimal opposition, then it's gonna be habituated. And I think she got exposed. And I think if she fights anyone, anyone with decent takedown defense and some hands, she's gonna get she's gonna get touched up. I agree with everything you're both saying, and I'm gonna give a counterpoint that doesn't disagree with anything you're saying, but I'm just gonna highlight something else because for the same reason actually that Jason wanted to get up and get a beer if there was another round is the reason why I liked watching this fight. Because Yana Kuniskaya reminds me of the Bad News Bears. Are we talking Tanner, like Tanner, the crazy second baseman from the Bad News, Bear, the Bad News Bears? Because I love that kid. <laughs> I mean, the whole team, right? Except the ending where they're, they're good. That doesn't happen for Yana. <laughs> I like the Bad News Bears even when they were bad, right? And she reminds me of that. I like that her style is all about overachieving. And what I mean by that is she's limited in her abilities, the way you both pointed out. She closes her eyes when she punches or gets hit. If you saw the replays where she's getting hit, you know, normally like you get hit and you see them close their eyes after they get hit and like their face turns. She already had her eyes closed before the punch came, right? Yeah. So this is Yana Kuniskaya, right? She's not particularly good anywhere. She has obvious tells and gets really predictable. So unlike Poirier, where he's able to hide it or use it into his rhythm, she has these tells where she moves her hands kind of like she's jogging in place. And then the moment they stop moving, you know, the punch is coming. Right. So that's why Aldana was able to predict everything she was going to do or when the attack was going to come or when she was free to pot shot. And I think 
in a weird way, Kuniskaya knows that also. That's why she closes her eyes when she comes in because she knows she might get hit anyway. Yet in spite of all that, she still manages to find some success in uh, MMA. I'd even say she was winning this fight up until the KO, even though it was obvious to Todd, to Jason, and even to me that Aldana was the better fighter and she was eventually going to win. So you could have a situation where you could have one person winning the beginning of the fight, but you could tell they're going to eventually lose, right? And this is what was happening in this fight. Like, Kuniskaya can, on occasion, beat better fighters because of her volume, pace, aggression, and her willingness to use all of her tools. So all the things that messed her up in this fight that Todd actually brought up, that over-aggression, sometimes can work for her and help her beat people she shouldn't beat. Yeah. Aldana in this fight was just thinking punches, mostly on the counter. Kuniskaya, I think she's aware that she's limited and she's not great anywhere. So she's just going to do everything. She's going to spam punches, elbows, kicks, knees, clinch, takedown. And it's that variety that makes it hard for, for even people who are better than her to deal with her. But notice how I didn't mention any defense, right? Because there, 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 there was none. Her variety is all offense. She has no defense, right? Yeah. I think if she can improve just that, maybe also her takedown somehow, she may never get a KO or may never stop anybody, but she'll win some decisions that way. I mean, she's already won decisions with what she has. If she can just add those things, you know, she could beat people who are better. The moral of the story is just because you're better than your opponent doesn't mean you will win. And inversely, just because you're worse doesn't mean you can't beat a better opponent. So I guess this is less about Yana Kuniskaya and more of a inspirational story about people who compete. Maybe you're matched up against somebody you know who's better than you. But just because they're better than you doesn't mean that you can't win. Because it's just about beating them that one time in this match. You don't have to fight 10 times, right? No, all you gotta do is figure them out once. And didn't didn't Aldana have an abysmal performance against Holly Holm? Was that the one? Am I remember that correctly? Yeah, Holly Holm got on her bike and circled, and Aldana just did not know how to cut her off. Yeah, so um, I remember that fight. And I don't mean to be disrespectful to either either fighter. And I like Irene Aldana as a, as a puncher. She's good. The reason I wa- was considering getting a beer was because I. Almost guaranteed that Iana was getting knocked out. I knew that was coming. <laughs> yeah. Or because because she is so offensive, she was going to win with spammy bullshit, which is which would have been worse for me mentally and emotionally because I see that all the time. I've had fighters that I coach that would win three and four fights in a row doing wrong shit, and how do you break them out of that if they're if they're winning? And the, but like you're developing a skill set. And you want to develop you want to develop optimally. Doing suboptimal shit and winning can habituate yourself or or just give you this this false sense of, of what is good. All you do is hate on my stuff. Like, no, it's it's bad stuff that any any top tenor would exploit. Well, I never said I wanted to be world class as one of my fighters. Like, I never said I wanted to be world class. Like, then what are we doing here? <laughs> if we're not working for that. So you get world-class by beating world-class people, and you beat world-class people by doing world-class things. I didn't see world-class things from Kunitsky, and I, they had a ranked top 10, and that sort of made me 
it made me a, a little uncomfortable. It bothered me. It fucking made me mad. <laughs> yeah. There's a couple of decisions she won where even those, like, she shouldn't have won. But the optics, I think, is what won her the fight. I think if you actually tabulated everything, even forgetting about damage and just even went by the stats that don't consider damage, she still didn't even outland her opponents or do anything. But just that aggression and just constantly showing something, doing something, right? You know, sometimes that could hypnotize the judges. Oh, absolutely. It's just like an argument. You know, majority of the time you'll beat somebody in an argument if you have the better argument. But sometimes you could beat them by just being a better troll, you know? And I think there's an analog <laughs> to that to MMA fighting. And I'm sure if you're a serious coach, you don't like fighters to win by being a troll. But, you know, even the term spam, right? That's from trolling, right? So oh, yeah. <laughs> some of that online spam shitpost culture has made its way into MMA and, you know, make a little niche out of it. Well, I think one might have influenced the other and then the other influenced the other back. And it's just this Krebs cycle of <laughs> assholishness that won't go away. <laughs> it's just going to be with us for a while. But uh, I, I want to say this about, about Yana real quick. And this is my hubris here. I think if I had her uh, for four months, I think I could really, especially defensively, I can iron out some of those wrinkles where she's just cl closing her eyes and wailing. That's if it one if she's coachable, and if like obviously if there's no like peripheral vision problems, no detached retina. If, but but closing your eyes in the pod. One thing I think I do well is be a, a specific set of drills um, and and training style. My pedagogical approach is to have them develop that visual acuity, especially in close. Um, I think I do it as well as anybody. And I think that like with, with her offense, if she had just a modicum of defense, then like those fights that we're saying are, are maybe questionable decisions that she's winning because she's just like launching an ungodly amount of randomness. <laughs> maybe, maybe we, maybe we dial it in a little bit, and add a, a why to what she's doing. And then I think that, you know, maybe you have a legit top tenor there. I need to come train with you, Jason. <laughs> While I was watching the fight, she reminded me of me when I'm doing Muay Thai because <laughs> I have like little tricks that I do, but it's never, you know, it's never like establishing a jab, you know, countering what they're doing. It's, it's just like, I know a few tricks. I'm going to do the few tricks and it works against the intermediate striker, but it doesn't work against anybody that's advanced. And, uh, you know, once they kind of realize that I'm not as good as, you know, my first few tricks, then they just bully me and, and beat the hell out of me. <laughs> well, your your own recognition of that deficit is it, 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 incredibly valuable. It really is. People want to, especially fighters, they want to live lives of self-deceit. They win doing suboptimal shit, and then they just act like it. it it's bad stuff. You got to know it. You, you got to watch your own, your own Instagram shit. You got to know it's not great, right? You see it with like, fighters who are three or four fights deep in their pro career. If your opponent's winning percentage is 0.300 or less, let's calm down on the 3-0 and talk. Like, yeah, you're, you're winning, but what are you doing and who are you beating? And what, are, what is the development? I, I used to have this little cutback that I hit in high school when I, I, I started hitting it. There's like some called a bump and roll. I got a wizard and you kind of roll underneath. You see Bendy Casimir hit a knee bar out of it. I used to just throw people to their back for five. And I was really good. It was a trick. 
I wouldn't defend the takedown and let you bring my leg up. I'd put my leg in between yours and I'd just bump underneath and I'd roll you to your back and tilt you for five until you took that away from me. And then I'd be down two nothing. That's a seven point swing. Okay. How about you learn to a better sprawl? You learn to, to square your hips, heavy pressure, get, get better at the front headlock position. Um, because you're not hitting that shit in college. You're not hitting it at the high school level. But I won my first nine matches in high school as a freshman, starting varsity, um, till I ran into a kid my 10th match who beat me, like, I think 19 to 12. And he must have thrown me eight times. <laughs> it would have been nice to have uh, a little more fundamental prowess rather than just, just the funk. And, uh, you know, maybe I closed that gap a little bit. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the show, Please support us and help us get paid for our labor by joining Team Southpaw on Patreon. By becoming a member, you'll get access to bonus content like exclusive articles, fight previews, bonus episodes, transcripts of fight studies, and access to our private chat group on Discord. But more importantly, you'll help us supplement the cost of the show, the incredible time and energy Sam and I put into making the show, and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle Southpaw with our day jobs, but also expand Southpaw into other areas. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Actually, the next fight builds into this conversation because it is the bantamweight bout between Sean O'Malley versus Chris Matino. I think the only person who complained about that stoppage in the third round was Joe Rogan. Otherwise, I saw no other controversy. In fact, if it were boxing and that many punches had landed, not only would a towel already have been thrown in, but also the ref would have already stopped it. MMA, it should take even less damage to stop a fight because the gloves are smaller and people tend to headhunt more. Jason, what are your thoughts about this fight? And then connecting to our previous conversation about fighters to give you some background. Chris Matino started amateur MMA in 2013. He started fighting as a pro in 2016. So what were your thoughts about this fight? Well, my, my first thoughts were you're, to fight Sean O'Malley, you're going to bring a guy who's two and two in his last four fights with two stoppage losses. That's what you're going to do? Yeah. Who the, fuck, <laughs> who the fuck are you catering to? The first thing I thought of, I don't know if you guys watch combate global but they got a band and weight named david martinez first thing i thought was i think david martinez beats the shit out of sean o'malley <laughs> i do i think there were fighters also in the ufc who said they would take the fight and then it ended up being this guy yeah yep so they they searched for an opponent for sean o'malley an opponent not opposition an opponent i'm talking about the the cab drivers you try to find for the uh, developing boxes first 15 fights that's the kind of shit they were doing the guy's coming off two knockout losses in his last four knockouts or tkos excuse me but i i have a problem when you bring guys up to the biggest stage that are two and two in their last four um and o'malley's a talented fighter but you brought in a guy to lose. And aren't we a little bit past that in Sean O'Malley's career? Like, come on now. Hey, who, who are you fooling? 
And so I watched it and I just kept getting more and more disgusted. And as I got more and more disgusted, I started just like, uh, I started like Googling David Martin or YouTube and David Martinez's fights. <laughs> Again, this is a, this is a plug to Combate Global. They got some good, good smaller fighters, especially at Bantamweight. And I thought Campbell McLaren doesn't want to give up any of his guys to the UFC, but I think the narrative from Campbell McLaren should be, I've got better fighters than you. Because they do. He has some, some tough kids. I think Martinez is like from California of Mexican descent. But you got some of these guys got hands, you got good chins, good cardio. They can make reads. Oh, yeah. Combate is good. They do. They look like established stand-up fighters who are just with just aggression and randomness. And to Martino's credit, he can take a punch. But coming off two knockout losses in the last two years, I don't, I don't think he should have. I really don't. I don't have any problem with the stoppage either. I'm, I'm like you. I've had, I heard the argument, like, if you're going to let him take that kind of beating that long, just let him finish the last 30 seconds. But the UFC has a narrative. You know, and trust me. I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be a conspiracy theorist, but um, if you think, was it Herb? Herb Dean was the, was the ref, right? Yeah. Herb's a company guy. He gets shit on every once in a while from Dana, but he's a company guy, even though he doesn't work for him. But he knows what the narrative's supposed to be. If O'Malley can't finish a guy that's two and two in his last four, it's been put out with relative ease, then that speaks to to really how like how much of a stalwart, how much of a juggernaut is this O'Malley kid? So they they let the kid take some punishment. Um, it could have been stopped earlier, but it it wasn't. The argument for many is that then you should let the kid go out in a shield. Ah, maybe, but they, they wanted a stoppage for their narrative. And like, uh, it's just funny how they, they found a way to make it happen. I apologize to Herb if it sounds like I'm saying that he's in on the hustle, but I fucking think they all are. <laughs> so it sounds like you're saying that if it really was about accumulated damage, it actually should have been stopped earlier. Yes. But at that point, they, you know, they got their money's worth. I'm not of the mindset to say, well, there's only 27 seconds left. That 27 seconds can cause, cause the kid permanent damage. So I'm not. I'm too old and I've been too injured over the course of my life to, to ever pull that just bleed, fighters fight bullshit. I'm just past it. Fighters also have to pay bills. They also have families that care about them. They also have children, their, their fathers, their husbands. Yeah, fighters fight, but if if that's all that an individual is identified as, well, no wonder they get treated like fucking livestock. So the UFC is going to use this to say, look how much we care about the fighters. We stopped this fight when in actuality, if that was the case, they would have stopped it earlier. So when they stopped it, it wasn't because they even cared about the fighters' health. They stopped it because they wanted a stoppage. That's basically what you're saying, right? That is what I'm saying. You're saying they're not the good guys. They are not. They are not. <laughs> Anyone that believes that, ah, I got a bridge to say. Yeah. If you want to know how bad UFC is, then you got to look at their new crypto.com deal where it is like a record setting sponsorship deal. So now all the fighters have to wear this not only on their shirts, but also on their actual fight shorts and they get no payment. So it's actually worse than the Reebok deal. They get nothing. Well, and, and the apparel looks like absolute shit. The Venom apparel looks bad. Um, 
And then you get the little crypto thing. And like, I love Israel Adesanya. I love him. Like, the guy can fight. And he did that. I saw a tweet. And he's, his picture. And he's falling. It was a Photoshop thing. <laughs> oh, that wasn't real? No, it was. He was doing a real ad for crypto.com. But because he, you could tell he was wearing nothing underneath. And how they did it was like, no, no, we don't know what the shirt design will look like. We don't know what the shirt is going to look like at all. So we'll just like kind of do it in post-production and make it look nice. But then you see how crappy it looks uh, when they actually came out with the official commercial. And it's so low tech. It looks like it was done <laughs> with an app, right? One of those free apps. It's so bad. And so you see their technology, right? How bad it looks. And you're supposed to trust the technology of crypto.com when that commercial looks that bad. Oh, yeah. It's awful. It's awful. It was embarrassing and awkward as shit. Todd, did you see it? I saw the picture that Sam posted, and, and it made me laugh so much. Like, <laughs> like, you know, why not just wait a couple minutes, like a couple weeks, and send him the shirt, and then have him do the promo? Then, you know, you don't need to rush things. You don't. Everybody thought it was a parody. So then they looked at the official UFC Instagram, Izzy's official Instagram, the UFC's Facebook page and also Crypto.com's page, and it was all there. It was uh, the official commercial. <laughs> for, for me, Izzy's stock would have went up. I would have contributed 10 grand to a GoFundMe for Izzy if he wanted one <laughs> to not take a fucking cent of that blood money, to tell them to shove it up their ass. I'm sorry for swearing so much, by the way. This gets, this gets to be heated. Because Izzy, Izzy walks to the beat of his own drum, man. He's an individual. Don't fall in line with that shit. I don't care how much they're paying you. Take a stand. Take a stand. And everyone's such, what do they call it? Careerism. Reeks ah, of opportunism as well. And also that means that he signed off on this without having any idea what they were going to actually put on him later, right? What they were going to do in post-production, which is also very unlike Izzy, but he's maybe at that point where he's just that kind of company man, or he's just like, I don't care. If you're going to pay me this much, you can Photoshop whatever you want. Izzy's also the guy that throws his um throws his monster can over his shoulder every time he gets the chance. So, you know, it's very surprising to see him. Saying that he doesn't want to endorse just anything. Yeah. Good point. Good point. Todd, what did you think about this fight with Sean O'Malley versus Chris Matino? And what did you also think about the stoppage? It was very interesting to me. Um, you know, Chris Matino's just walking Sean O'Malley down, but not really landing anything and Sean O'Malley's piecing him up the whole time, but walking backwards, walking backwards the whole time. Um, somebody that I was watching the fights with was asking me, um, you know, is Sean O'Malley not as powerful as we thought before? Or is Chris Martino that tough? Um, but it's, you know, it's hard to get, you know, you could throw good power shots, you know, backpedaling, but, um, you know, we, we haven't really seen Sean O'Malley against, you know, top 15 guys. So we don't really know where, where he is in the division. You know, everybody wants to see the sugar show, but you know, where is he really in the division? They just kind of spoon fed him some guy and the guy came out and performed pretty damn well. He wowed everybody with his toughness. And I think the stoppage actually did more good for Chris Martino <laughs> than it did for Sean O'Malley. Because now everybody, you know. Going to Google him. Exactly. Everybody wants, everybody, you know, people are going to 
wanting to see him more of him, see how, you know, how tough he is. When I was tweeting about this fight, I said this pay-per-view debut by Chris Matino reminded me of the WWE pay-per-view debut of Mankind, which is Mick Foley. Yeah. And everybody was like, it's spot on because Mick Foley became a legend by appearing in the WWE and in his first pay-per-view and his next several from uh, the Boiler Room fight to Hell in a Cell, he got famous for getting his ass kicked, right? And just being tough and constantly getting up and being able to take punishment. And he became really famous. And I don't know how long that's going to last for Matino, but that's what this reminded me. I was like, as far as performance, using Jason's rubric of good fighting, knowing why, good fundamentals, all that, he failed. But in another rubric of toughness and that kind of mankind, car accident, stuntman kind of performance, you were very impressed by this dude just because it's not even just that he walked through punches. He also got rocked and dropped several times too. It's just that he kept getting back up. And unlike other fighters where if they get dropped and rocked, they are now easier to hurt later in the fight. It seems like he got harder and harder to hurt the more times he got dropped, which is not good. If you know anything about the brain, the brain shutting off is a mechanism to protect the brain. Oh, yeah. So the fact that his brain was not shutting off is actually saying that he's taking more damage and his brain is not working the way it's supposed to work. So it definitely reminded me of that kind of mankind, hell in the cell, kind of like a hardcore match. And uh, O'Malley was just styling on him. And I think part of the reason why he couldn't just get that one punch KO was because Matino was just walking towards him. You know, if you really want to hurt somebody, you got to hit them as they're throwing their punch so that they're coming onto your punch with their head. So even if they don't have any defense, if they're just walking forward without throwing anything and they're actually still not overextending their face, you could actually take a lot of damage if you have a pretty sturdy chin. You were present in that moment. Uh, you're just you're sort of a walking zombie, though. You're not doing any damage to your opposition. But <laughs> you're you're prepped and ready to get hit in the face. Yeah. And and I think he was. Yeah. The times that he did get rocked was when he was actually exchanging with O'Malley. And then that's when he got hurt because he was extending himself. And then I think after he got rocked, he stopped trying that because he realized that's when I get hurt. And I can't say he was trying to win. I mean, he was coming forward. But I was surprised at the lack of takedowns by either fighter. And I feel like if Matino really wanted to win, he should at least try to do some takedowns, but he didn't even try to do that. So it almost feels like he was going for a moral victory. And going back to some of the stuff we talked about with Tells and actually what Jason talked about with this like arm swing, contralateral swing as he's coming forward. And every time his hand stopped, O'Malley knew he was about to throw a punch. So then O'Malley would beat him to the punch and just jab him or hit him or kick him. And it became just so predictable for O'Malley. So I will give O'Malley that, yeah. that he is able to tell tells yeah he's he's also very he's very quick and he's precise and he does make some good reads he can, he can fight on the lead he can fight on the counter he's creative he, he does have some intangibles i don't mean to shit on him too much i just don't like i don't like hype trains and i don't like um catering to a narrative marlon vera was beating him up i mean no one no one talks about marlon vera i don't i think cody stamen steamrolls the sugar show i think he does I mean, how do you think he would do against an aged Jose Aldo at 35? He doesn't win that. Aldo wins that. So 
like, yeah, maybe you're waiting for these guys to get older, but how many Matinos are you going to bring up until Auto ages out? Fuck, guys. Come on. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough sport. No more moral victories for the Mutinos. And I, <laughs> I, when I talked on the, um, the last show that we did together, Sam, that's what I mean about commoditizing fighters. Uh, you, got, you guys will just you can pay me just by me being there. Just give me that opportunity. It's payment enough. Tex Cobb. Remember Tex Cobb, the boxer? Randall Tex Cobb. Yeah, I do. I do. He's also, he's also in Raising Arizona. Actually, no, he was a pretty prolific boxer as that guy that you paid to just get beat up sometimes. And he fought a lot like that. But he was still actually much better than a lot of MMA fighters as far as boxing goes. Yeah. But he had a pretty good acting career. Yes, yes, he did. I don't know if you ever saw his fight against um, the, the Eastern Assassin, Larry Holmes. Mm-hmm. Larry, Larry Holmes lit him up with that jab. I thought he was going to kill him. And he, I think that's a relatively good comparison between the, the Sean O'Malley fight and that. It's not all that dissimilar. With one fighter walking forward and eating a ton of punishment. The other fighter much quicker, much more accurate, much more polished. My problem is whenever you call it the ultimate proving ground and you bring in guys <laughs> to lose. How is that the ultimate proving ground? I don't know if there's any junior high wrestlers that are going to keep me at 45 for beating them. That is when it becomes kind of like a legitimate way to fix a fight or like pro wrestling booking where you don't tell one person to lose, but you book people that you know for sure will lose. Yeah. And it's, it's too dangerous of a sport. And there's too many good guys out there that deserve their shot for this should be a meritocracy if you are good that should be what gets you there not that you are not good enough to beat so and so so that it allows you an opportunity to fight and not be a threat for victory like that that's my concern now what did you both think about the lack of takedowns from O'Malley cuz I already talked about Matino not really even going for takedowns but when O'Malley couldn't finish him, a lot of veterans at that point then to preserve their own hands, actually, to not accidentally break your own hands sometimes or to just end the fight, they will go for a takedown and look to submit them in some way or win by some kind of TKO on the ground. But O'Malley didn't go for one takedown either. I, don't, I really don't think Sean is, is much of a grappler. You know, Maybe he's not as uh, confident in his, his grappling skills or even his takedown skills. Um, to get the fight to the ground, especially against the guy coming in, you know, on 11 days notice, um, you know, who he really doesn't know. He knows he could outbox him, but, you know, can he out grapple him? If he goes for a takedown, is he going to get caught in a guillotine? So he's probably, you know, erring on the side of caution there. That's a good point. And maybe he doesn't work takedowns that much because he's sold into the UFC's style right the style they want you to have which is all striking with small gloves even though this is supposed to be mma not small gloves kickboxing yeah just bleed right just bleed that's all they want they want small (laughs) glove kickboxing and then now fans are even getting mad when you kick too much (laughs) so basically you want you want bad boxing with small gloves all right man let's just wait till winter time and then pick fights in traffic how about that you know that's the same shit i was watching a fight um it was uh, Zabit, Zabit's last fight, and uh, I was watching the fight with some people. You know, they don't know much about MMA, but I'll still watch it with you. <laughs> and uh, you know, one guy was on his phone the whole time, and you know, after the fight, he goes, "Was ninety nine percent of that fight on the ground?" We all said, "Yeah." 
And he goes, oh, yawn. <laughs> I told him, you know, if only there's a sport a lot like MMA that doesn't have the stupid grappling component, <laughs> I'd be watching that. Yet people don't like kickboxing either or Muay Thai, so. It's bizarre. I don't know. I don't understand the cognitive dissonance. I never will. No, I think you said it. They want bad boxing. That's why the celebrity boxing, which is bad boxing, is doing better than really good boxers. Yep. Yeah, that's what you see. Something that's easily replicated. Spammy, bad boxing where people are just put slanging and banging or swinging <laughs> and banging. That's what they want. Um, and it's easy, it's easy to replicate that. I know a lot of wrestlers that are just absolutely fearless and they can't punch for shit. I would imagine pitting them against each other in a cage and saying, hey, no takedowns um, would, be, would be pretty fun to watch. But it wouldn't be good boxing. <laughs> it really wouldn't. Or good, it wouldn't be good fighting, period. And be wild, overly aggressive. And that's that's what Dana wants. And that's why I hate his fucking guts. <laughs> <laughs> now there's only one fight I want to talk about from the regular prelims, which is the featherweight fight between Ilya Tapuria versus Ryan Hall, which ended in the first round by KO, as Tapuria predicted. Todd, how did Tapuria handle Hall's grappling, and did Tapuria surprise you at all with his own grappling knowledge? I don't think he... He didn't really surprise me. It was just somebody was going to do that to Hall eventually. Oh, you thought that was coming? Yeah. Why did you think that was coming eventually? Just, you know, Ryan Hall does the same stuff every fight. He fights from the outside. He throws a lot of spammy kicks. He... He doesn't really engage with punching and he doesn't clinch. He just goes for, you know, his Iminaris and, and tries to like jump guard, invert. He skips a lot of steps. Exactly. And, you know, somebody, somebody along the line was going to do that to Ryan Hall and it finally happened Saturday night. It was really cool to see how he dealt with uh, Hall's inverted guard, kind of came around, popped him with a few shots. And then he was past the guard. Hall couldn't roll over in time before he was knocked out. It was pretty satisfying to see to see that, you know, watching his style, he just kind of cringe every time. And eventually somebody was going to do that to him. So kind of like what Jason was talking about, Ryan Hall presented this problem, but it wasn't a problem that was evolving. So because it was a static problem, that was the same problem over and over you're saying it was only a matter of time before somebody figured it out. Exactly. And Ryan Hall, he hasn't fought in a while. So the last time we heard about him was his uh, statements about Hitler. So if you want to look that up, you could just look up Ryan Hall and Hitler. The reason why the host took it so well and he said it on this podcast was because it is a free speech type of podcast where they're all about that. So if you tell me Hitler was a great artist or at least an underrated artist, I immediately think, Nazi, not art critic, right? <laughs> well, Jason, tell me what you thought about this fight, actually. And did you have similar ideas like Todd, where eventually somebody was going to figure Ryan Hall out? I, I thought that. I mean, I, I, you guys have probably picked up on my, my philosophy in fighting. Is Yeah, I mean, there, there are. I love innovators. I think my training, uh, my approach to training, um, strength and conditioning, and skill acquisition is is very innovative, but there are also some staples that you need to adhere to. Um, and you can, you get, how's the saying go? You learn the rules before you break them. 
and you can start adapting those fundamentals or, or those tangential skills uh, married to your fundamentals once you've acquired them and have a, a strong understanding of them. Obviously, he has a great understanding of jujitsu, but jujitsu is not MMA. Anyone that tells you it differently is wrong. Um, anyone that says jujitsu wins fights is wrong. Fighting wins fights. Um, if you say if you say wrestling wins fights, well then tell me that if you don't throw any punches or kicks to set that up. Work solely with that skill set more than fighting wins fights. He took a singular skill set about as far as you could possibly take in the UFC with some really, really impressive wins. But other than the, the occasional wheel kick that he was able to land, which he finds own for it, you know, don't get me wrong, his, his striking, no one should call it good. It's got some it's some merits, and he's able to do some things because people are so afraid of his jujitsu, and he plays with that. But I think if he had better technical striking, even even if that that round finished and there wasn't any any damage from the ground and pound, throwing yourself flopping around on the ground doesn't look good to any judge. It doesn't, um, unless you're Imanari himself, maybe. So, um, and I, I I had a feeling. I think I texted you this, uh, Ilya. Superior kid has the goods and is likely the, the future of 145 pounds. I, I watched his last fight and he, he that left hook to the body. He ended up throwing like a left hook to Ryan Hall's ass when he tried to spin, <laughs> like when he tried to, to roll, get outside that shoulder, and then a Minari roll. And he just sort of like stopped his movement, sort of like teeping a guy who's hitting hitting a spinning back kick, just teeping him right in the butt. And he sort of stopped his momentum and then was able to to kind of flatten him to his shoulder a bit and then land some ground and pound. I don't think this was a, was a great fight that showcased um, Ilya's physical tools as much as his, his fight IQ and positional awareness. And those are intangibles that someone who has his physicality, because Ilya can wrestle. He's really good at jujitsu too. And he's, only, he's in his like early twenties. This guy is going to be a handful. He's a left hook to a bot to the body and a chopping overhand right. And he looks like, like a, a Spanish Georgian uh, version of, of um, Canelo Alvarez in tight, hitting short shots with traditionally longer strikes. This guy can wrestle as well. So you see someone who marries the, the, the different skill sets as well as anyone I've seen in their early 20s against someone who has ridiculous mastery of one. And the problem is, uh, I think, Hall's uh, expertise bias. You start to think, because you win fights this way, that it is the best way to win fights. It isn't. It isn't. And yes, it's worked for him, and everything works till it doesn't. They would take a $2,000 OLED TV and move it without any packing, without like, without the styrofoam, lay it flat on its face. You get it to the new location and it, plug it in, turn it on, everything's fine. But two, three, four times out of that 10, you're going to have some dead bars, right? You're going to have some, some color and adjustment problems. You're going to screw it up. When 10 out of 10 times, Throw some fucking styrofoam in there and, and you get it to where it needs to be by following a, a fundamentally sound approach rather than what becomes a high risk approach. But it's good for his jujitsu school to show that he's got that skill set 
it carried him pretty far. I don't really think his wins over BJ Penn and uh, Gray Maynard mean much to me. I mean, those guys are about 700 combined. So you throw him in there against a kid like Ilya Tapuria, who is going to be he's, he's next level, and you get what you got. You get what you got. Him getting pounded out. So with this fight, you'll barely hear DC or Anik talk, but you ended up missing a lot by just listening to Rogan, especially about what Tapuria was doing. Tapuria, from what I understand, and Jason already mentioned this, is a BJJ phenom who also has good wrestling and who came up during our current leg lock era in submission grappling. So unlike Hall, who was the one doing a lot of leg locks in his era, Tapuria came up when everyone was doing leg locks. There's actually a 12-year age gap between Hall and Tapuria. So Hall is being talked about, especially by Rogan, as this innovator, as this new cutting-edge style of grappling. But actually, Hall's heyday and era is actually a long time ago. So when Hall was coming in with his Iminari roles, Toporia treated them like what they are, single leg entries. It just happens to be single legs that are upside down. And as Hall level changed, Toporia level changed. Then when he was able to stuff Hall from grabbing his leg, Toporia began to pass Ryan Hall's guard with a mix of Toriando passes and leg drag passes. So Rogan made it seem like Toporia was just escaping when in actuality, Toporia was attacking and passing. Even if scored from a BJJ perspective or by BJJ rules, Toporia was up on points and advantages. So Toporia was actually out grappling Ryan Hall. Also, all the body shots worked to counter Hall's level change because he would throw to the body and it would either hit Hall to the body or as Jason mentioned, sometimes to the ass, or it would hit Hall's face as he was dropping down and it was paying dividends. Toporia is all around well-rounded, whereas during Hall's time off, Hall seemed to have only worked on new Imanari entries, which Toporia stuff all the same way. And as far as actual heel hooks, Hall has been fighting as a pro since 2006. He has heel hooks in submission grappling and in exhibitions, but in pro MMA fights, he only has two heel hooks in a 15-year career. One to an unknown MMA fighter named Ryan Hogan's in UCL, and one to a washed BJ Penn who was 1-7-1 and one going into that fight. This is just to give you a little grain of salt to Joe Rogan's hype about Ryan Hall. Yeah, I think that fits into what I was saying about uh, his, his victory over BJ Penn means nothing to me. It really doesn't. Now let me end with one question for both of you. Brad Tavares. He's been fighting as a pro since 2007. He's been in the UFC since 2010. He's 19-6. and six. He's only 33 years old, which isn't that old for a middleweight. He just beat Omari Akhmedov in the early prelims and is nearly impossible to take down. What does he need to do to break into the top 10 and possibly even the top five as far as improvements he needs to make? You know, Brad Tavares just needs to fight how the UFC wants him to fight. Um, he needs to show some highlight reel finishes, um, you know, probably get some performance bonuses under his belt, you know, because that's what, you know, the UFC wants and that's what the casual fan wants to see. Tavares is very calculated. He, 
he wasn't really biting on Akhmedov's feints. He was showing really good head movement. And, uh, you know, he was also getting those, uh, those leg kicks in, which even made uh, Akhmedov fall. So, you know, maybe throwing a little more of those in the first round as opposed to the second and third. Akhmedov was trying to get the, to land the big shot the whole time. And Tavaro's was, you know, countering and picking his shots. But he could have uh, been a little more aggressive and, and gone, tried to go for the finish. I had the first round going for Akhmedov, but the second and third I had going for Tavares. Well, I think first I th- we need to recognize what he has done, right? He only fought uh, twice in 2021, not at all in 2019, or not at all in 2020, once in 2019. So he's taken some time off. He lost by head kick. KO against Edmund Shabazian. Um, and he got he got roughed up by Izzy before then. So, you know, late 2018 or mid-2018, late 2019 was a little bit tough for him uh, coming off those two losses. So I'm not sure if he had some injuries or what he let heal up. But you can get sort of a like a physical um, resurgence when you let your body heal, especially the brain. You know, the central nervous system is, it's all the mind body connection is a real thing. I'm not making it up. Um, so once you zap, and they, those, those guys over at Couture's train hard, and Tavares is notorious for sparring hard. And the central, central nervous system starts to get fatigued. It pretty much tells you to fuck off. I want to rest. And you push through and you say, oh, there's no such thing as overtraining because you watched. Uh, Matt Hughes's fucking highlight video, and you realize everything he said was wrong. Um, <laughs> so from a, a sports-specific training methodology, you decide to give your body and your brain some time to to restart. And he's looked he's looked better in 2021. So with a little bit of time off, uh, I'd be interested to see you know, that Shabazian fight was pretty quick. I'd be interested to see how he does against him in a rematch. Um, I would try to avenge that loss. And if you can do that, that's the, that would be my first focus. Try to get a rematch with Edmund. You get that, then your only two losses since 2015, besides Edmund, are Robert Whitaker, who is who Robert Whitaker is Bobby Knuckles. He's number two ranked guy in the world. And then you got an Izzy, the number one ranked guy at 185 in the world. Now you start to have those conversations. If those are the only two guys beating you, and you avenge that Edmund fight. Well, let's start talking about getting you in there with, I don't know, uh, maybe Brunson, maybe some other guys that uh, that are ranked in the top ten that whose records are still a little spotty, and the the matchup potentially favors him. I like to see him get three fights in a row. I think he's a streaky fighter. I think he's a fighter when he fights with confidence. He has a little more intelligence than I think he shows because he just wants to to beat the shit out of everybody. He wants to fight you. That's the thing. I almost think he's more concerned about just beating you up than even winning. And I think that catches up with him sometimes. He puts himself in harm's way. Um, you know, uh, to what Todd said, yeah, you want to be you want to be fan friendly, but go back and watch Brad Tavares' fights. He has been fan friendly, and you know his record is a uh, nineteen and six is still a solid record. But because he's willing to throw down and bang, he's 
got a few more KO losses than he probably should have. I think defensively he's underrated because he's so offensive that he, you know, there's some obvious vulnerability there whenever you take those kinds of chances. Um, I would uh, some some good strategic matchups that um, you know I don't have the t- who is in the top ten in front of me, but if he can stay off the ground, like Hermanson might be a decent fight for him. I mean, Hermanson is tough, but the the last couple fights is have put some wear and tear on him. I think now might be a time. You think you can stay claim to that top ten position? You might get him after he's been uh, – he's looked vulnerable in the Shabazian fight, and Marvin Vittori was – that thing was a barn burner. That had to age him. Those are the fights that I would try to look for, some nice strategic matchups where the guy may be ranked higher, but he matches up better against. I feel like, to your point, his defense is pretty good. His offense is pretty good. The thing that he's lacking, even in this fight, is that – he has the defense to make his opponents miss, but then he doesn't make them pay when they miss. And I think that's necessary to get into the top five. I, I agree. Um, like I said, I caught a ping pong before. You go, I go, you go, I go. And that is, that is born of like sparring when you have 30 guys on the mat. Like you got to sort of watch where you are, so you don't want to get tangled up in the midst of strikes. But I don't know if you've ever listened to Jack Slack or read like his his intro to striking manual, where he talks about the three initiatives: leads, where I throw first, right? Delayed counters. That's I make you throw, I make you miss, I make you pay. So there's delayed counters, and there's simultaneous counters. And I I alluded to that. I was talking about Poye timing Connor's left hand. He saw Connor load up that left hand, and he just shifted his head to the outside of Connor's left, head off center. Connor's head still on center, and he split his. So they're both throwing, like a la Rocky three. You can start to identify some some good split punch opportunities for for simultaneous counters when you start making reads. Sometimes guys are entirely too offensive that they don't make reads. It just becomes this rock'em sock'em robot. Like they are, there are punches in between punches, but it's random and not recognized. Um, I think if he can establish that, I think he has it. I mean, I've watched this guy hit pads. Um, I lived in Vegas. I, I, um, I trained out of Couture's for a while, and Tavares really does have the goods. He's he's strong. He's fast. Um, he's always in pretty good shape. Uh, but he spars so hard. I wonder if it puts some some miles on him a little bit prematurely. Maybe taking that time off between 2019 and 2021 agreed with him. I definitely also think if he were to mix in some takedowns, that would also be a nice addition, especially at middleweight, where. There aren't that many wrestlers, so sometimes the guy who's willing to do a couple of takedowns can win fights there because it is so striking heavy. Oh, yeah, and they love to throw hard. These are big, fast guys. And when they overcommit, I mean, I don't don't see any reason to engage a person with four-ounce gloves who throws triple hooks, right hook, left hook, right hook, or left hook, right hook, left hook, and all to the head. Each time you're exposing your hips, 
you're 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 squared up, but you've rotated shoulder through the inability to get your foot back. I don't know why you wouldn't just lower your level and get one. I mean, I get I guess if you're chasing the fifty grand, I I would think that a calculated decision to get underneath those every once in a while might keep you one from getting knocked out and dissuade them from throwing with such power and authority every exchange. There's just there's some strategy to it. If not, I mean, I won't give the fans what they want. Shut up with that. Quit currying favor with your fucking oppressor. Like, stop that. <laughs> you shouldn't call him Uncle Dana? Oh, you know, because he, he always has everyone's best interests at heart. If my fighter's in there with a bigger, badder, better fighter, and we can find a slick way to beat him that isn't fan-friendly, fuck the fans and fuck Dana White. It's about winning. I feel like once he leaves, it's going to still be bad because after him, I feel like Hunter Campbell is going to take over and he's just as bad. They've already embedded this culture in the psyche of the up and coming athletes. They've turned it into Lord of the Flies. Not like, hey, man, if you get what you're worth and I get what I'm worth, we can up our stock together. No, it's like, I'll fight for free. They, they, they throw in things like top of the food chain, apex predator. <laughs> I mean, did you ever watch Willie Pep? Do you think that guy could bench press 145 pounds? But you couldn't touch him. You want to tell me that's mm -hmm. boring and that's not fighting? How about guys who have never fought don't get to determine what is fighting and what isn't? You mm -hmm. know who rarely fights? The fucking fans rarely fight. So I don't need their take on this just bleed bullshit. What they need to do is educate themselves or fuck off. But we've already lowered the bar so much that if you got someone in there with a significant ground game, like a beautiful ground game, but that is nuanced and technical, and they don't get it, they don't want to get it. Well, that's problematic. That means from a marketing perspective, you failed to inform the fans. And who's that on? Well, it should be on Dana, right? It should be on, on the UFC and the sport as a whole. To, to kind of grow the, the sport itself. Remember Pride, when they wouldn't mm -hmm. even cheer out of respect? You know, that's, that's how it started. But this is where we've fallen. And, and, and that upsets me. The, the promoter shouldn't determine what is entertaining for the sole purpose of selling pay-per-views and commoditizing mediocre fighters. That's all they've done. They're easy to replicate. You can find a guy who's pissed and just throw him in there and say, fight. And that's it. And that's, the, that's becoming their new business model. While they capitulate to the guys who've got a little bit of style or really stupid fucking hair and decide <laughs> that that's going to be their new superstar. With that said, I actually miss uh, the events with no live audience. Now, having the booze coming back. Eh. Yeah. Right, and I, but I also think that the, the decisions, even though judging in MMA is notoriously just whacked, I think without the fans, it was better. It was an improvement because you didn't have like the fans cheering for like their favorite white guy over the out of town foreigner, and the the judges hearing every punch that missed, the fans going crazy for. It. The human condition, without the ability to have instant replay in front of you or the capability to rewind, you sort of go with the energy in the room. If things are equal, all things being equal, 
And and that's what you get. You know, I tell my fighters, hey, man, if you want to fight a Henzo Gracie guy in New York on a Henzo Gracie heavy card, you better come correct, man, because you're not getting a fucking decision. <laughs> so let's plan to dominate mm-hmm. positionally. We got to be smart. None of this. You go, you go, nothing. Don't do that. Don't do that. They're going to reward randomness for them. They're not going to do so for you because you're not going to have the cheers that's going to propel that energy. Basic mm-hmm. human psychology combined with some corrupt nepotism as well. <laughs> well, let's wrap this up. So I really appreciate both of you for coming on the show and giving your insights. Todd, where can people find you? Um, my Instagram is locura underscore YJJ. That's L-O-U-C-U-R-A underscore YJJ. I also teach at Guardian Baltimore. You should check them out. Um, it's a nonprofit uh, for inner city youth kids in Baltimore to train jujitsu for free. And they're on, I think, guardianbaltimore.org and also Instagram on Guardian Baltimore. Todd, the, the Guardian Baltimore. That's outstanding. That's an outstanding thing, man. Um, kudos to you. Thank you. All right. I'll put all that in the show notes. And Jason, where can people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Jason Sargas. Um, and basically all the social media platforms is just my name. All right. Thanks, fellas. And I'll put all that in the show notes. Now that's the show. If you enjoyed this episode and find this type of independent media worthwhile, please consider supporting the show on Patreon. We have a lot more episodes like this one in the works, but need your financial support to keep the show running. Even a few dollars a month goes a long way. No one does what we do, and it's all being funded by you, the listener. In return for supporting us, you'll gain access to lots of bonus content along with our private Discord chat. Even if you can't support us, there's a lot of free bonus content there as well. We also have an online store if you want to show your Southpaw solidarity by wearing our swag. You can find all pertinent links at southpawpod.com. And if you can't afford to support the show and still want to help, please leave us a five-star review wherever you listen. This makes it easier for others to find us. And don't forget to share your favorite episodes or the podcast itself on social media. Tell your friends. Until next time, goodbye. South Pulse, hitting with the left. South Pulse, Sam, Paul, South Paul, South Paul.